Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Low Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Betsy Ames, who is the owner of Mindful Style. She's a closet curator turned social worker and is currently working toward earning her clinical license to become an addiction-focused therapist. She's also a recovering compulsive shopper and alcoholic. She currently teaches others sustainable and mindful shopping practices and decluttering tips. She walks her talk and practices what she teaches. You can find out more about her by going to mindfulstyle.com slash meet Betsy. I am so excited for you guys to hear Betsy's story. Compulsive shopping is something that I think many of us certainly have traits, if not full-blown addictions, and it is so eye-opening to hear about how our ism, I, self, me, how the, the, the addiction piece of our brain can grab onto anything. And I, I really think that Betsy does a great job of talking about that and talking about what she experienced and what she got out of the compulsive shopping. Really, really helpful. And, uh, and of course, her alcoholism was incredibly progressed and what she's done with her life and turned it around into her company, Mindful Style, is just amazing. Of course, I'm going to need to have her help me curate my closet, which is a mess. So looking forward to that, learning sustainable and mindful shopping practices. And I hope you enjoy this incredible story. Betsy Ames, everybody. Episode 76. Let's do this. Betsy, thank you so much for being here. Oh, Ashley, my privilege. This is so exciting. This has been a long time coming, and uh, you are very close with some people who've been in my family for a long time. Mm, I that am. Is, that is, uh, it's a small world and lots of us recovering people hanging around. Yes, we need each other desperately. Mm-hmm. Where? So you are from back east. You're from, are you from New Jersey or New York? I am from Montclair, New Jersey, and now I'm in Denver. As I started to tell you, I've had quite, I've had quite a ride this whole life. <laughs> but the last couple of months, I have been living in Denver after selling my house in literally 14 days after the lockdown started in New Jersey and jumping in an RV with my youngest child who was home from college and driving across country and showing up on my son's doorstep. Oh my gosh. And how was, how was that move? What did, what, what precipitated this sale of your home in the middle of COVID? Well, I have been planning for the last two years to move out of the area. It's where I grew up. And I had decided on December about a year, uh, excuse me, on Denver about a year and a half ago. So the plan was in place and like a true, I got to have what I got to have kind of person, the pandemic hit and I was like, I'm still listing my house. Let's just see what happens. Oh, it's sold in three days. And then, oh, how could I get across country? Oh, an RV. Let's see if there's any available. So it just was, it really was like my strong will over anything. Yeah. 
And it's the same strong will that got me into lots of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) I relate to that very much. I relate to people would always say to me, if you could only use your determination for, you know, insert whatever I was doing for good things, then you could get a lot done. And and that has been the case, but it is determination in whatever direction it's pointing, it's determined. Exactly. Yep. So, uh, and now you're in Denver, very different from New Jersey, but you love it. I love it. I'm here starting a whole new life. I just graduated from Fordham with a master's in clinical social work, as I think you know, and I'm here starting a business and hoping to do remote therapy to people wherever, which I know you guys have been doing for years, you know, hallelujah for you. And of course, now that is really the way to do therapy. So I get to kind of sit in this house and look at the mountains, but talk to everybody, which is so cool. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. So tell me, what did you do before you said you're starting a new life? What did you do before uh, your social work degree? So I raised four children. I have two boys and two girls. The oldest is 28 and the youngest is 20. And that is what I did for 23 years, only that, after having been in the fashion business for many years before that. So here I am back kind of full circle wanting to help people who are compulsive shoppers or compulsive buyers or the un-PC way to say it is shopping addicts. Right. Oh, that's the un-PC. Okay. That's the un-PC. Just like we don't say substance abuse or or, um, we don't say drug addict, we say substance use now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So there's a lot of different ways to say somebody who's over shopping. Yep. Okay. Okay. So I want to get there. I want to get a little bit of background on you to hear about how you got into over shopping. How long have you been in recovery for starters? So I have been in recovery um, almost 17 years on October 20th. It will be 17 years. And I, you know, my story is so much like so many other people's, I drank, I got drunk, I fell down and somebody told me you're in really bad shape. You need to go away. And I planned the whole thing. Like I was going on a vacation. That's how my story begins. My recovery story begins, but going back in my life, you know, I grew up in a household that reminds me exactly of Mad Men. My parents cocktailed and had cocktail parties and it looked very glamorous to be a drinker. Yes. So that was the first that I learned of alcohol. And, but my first drunk, I got drunk. I blacked out. I puked. And, you know, like, does everybody do that at age 14? No, probably not. They don't. And that was the beginning of the story of me, you know, using alcohol to warm my soul. Actually, I just heard something really cool twice. And so when I hear an expression twice, I really kind of take note of it. So I'm going to say it the third time. And that is somebody who qualified said that they felt homesick at home. And that's exactly how I felt growing up. So were both your mother and father in the picture? Both my parents were in the picture until I was 14. And, you know, looking back, there definitely was something going on there because they decided to switch from gin to vodka because gin was making them argue too much. (laughs) 
Right. Right. Uh, there's, there's just so much there. There's just, I love when people I'm like, I don't even know how to start. Well, okay. So were you an only child? I'm an only child from a second marriage. I have three half siblings from my father's first marriage. And that sort of is part of the story of how I felt different. Not only was I an only child growing up in a neighborhood that most people had three, four, five kids, and my parents were quite a bit older, but then my half-siblings would come visit and they would say things to me like, you know, when you bleed, you have red blood, but when we bleed, we're blue bloods. And, you know, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that it sounded like I wasn't as good. And there was something different about me. Right. And I definitely took that all on. Yeah. And okay, so it's your father's second marriage. How old were you when you started? So what was the, when you started to go, oh, this is glamorous, these cocktail parties, those things like, was that a thought you had at the time or was it something you thought you think looking back? I had it at the time. I used to sit on the curved staircase in our house, waiting to be told I could come down and say goodnight to the guests before I went to bed from probably age, you know, three, four. And like I said, it was like Mad Men. Everybody was dressed up. They had their cocktails. There was loud laughter. There were hors d'oeuvres. My mother would hire somebody to come in and cook um, just for that, for the events. And, you know, it was really quite fabulous. If I look back on it, I would love to live that life. But I didn't really realize what was going on underneath not only with my parents, but with other families. As a matter of fact, the first time I remember seeing a drunk person was at one of those cocktail parties. A very good friend of my parents was sitting in a chair and was like mumbling to himself. And I came into the room to say goodnight. And I remember going, oh my God, what is wrong with him? And it turns out within a few years, he got sober in the late 60s. And he was the first of the group to do that. But this gentleman was sitting there drunk and it scared me. And I, you know, I think I thought that really scares me. You know, I don't want to ever be anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is scary. (laughs) It's scary if you don't know what's going on, or maybe even if you do. You, so you, you decide, did you drink alone at 14 or did you drink with other people? That first drink was at a wedding that first drink and drunk. And, you know, I did not just hop on the bandwagon as some people talk about. I kind of was like, well, that pretty much sucked the end of it. But the beginning of it, wow, I feel warm and I feel likable and blah, blah, blah. And I did not pursue it particularly. I did get involved with a group of people who were pretty fast within a couple of months after that. In ninth grade, I was still 13 years old and I became a cheerleader. And this was a fast group of girls. And I dropped acid before I was 14 years old at a school dance, dressed as a cheerleader and had a bad trip and called my mother, of course, way before cell phones and said, my stomach is upset. Will you come get me? And I went home and laid in my bed, not telling her that I was having a bad trip for another three hours. Mm, not fun. Bad trips. No fun. And t- very young. Very, very young. So that sort of set me on the, oh, I'm scared of drugs. And I might even be scared of alcohol for some years until I got to college. And, you know, My story is so much about wanting to fit in 
and to be liked that I chose my college because where our mutual friends went to, because there were twice as many boys there as girls, not because of the academics or the location. Right. There were twice as many boys. Because what was I looking for? Attention. Validation. Absolutely. And your dad had left, um, you know, the, the, the man had, your life had left early on. What, um, what was that like when your dad left and, and did that leave any marks? It was really tragic. He did not move too far away. He got, he owned a company and he got involved with an underling at the company. And I would only see him two hours a week. When he would come to our hometown to go to church, yep, going to church, got to go to church, but, you know, cheating on my mom, and then he would only see me for two hours. When his drive was really 30 minutes away, it really wasn't. So it was really quite devastating to me, and I think to my self-esteem, and I was at the age where what I looked like suddenly became important, and I took the whole thing on as, oh my gosh, I'm not good enough. And boy, I need the male gaze. I need male attention. Did your mom tell you about what had happened or explain to you anything? What was your what was your uh, story that you received about that? Why he left? Well, it wasn't until much later that I was. She told me what what went on, but I was a snoop, and I went through her things. I knew something was going on, and I found a private investigative report that he was with a woman. And so how heartbreaking to me was that, that I'm sitting like alone in her bedroom reading this going, oh my God. But I didn't feel like I could tell her that. I, you know, I was just, I was devastated. Was she good about, or, or I don't know if good's the right word. What was her explanation to you or, or, or how did she represent him when he wasn't there? She was very good because now that I'm divorced, I know how hard it can be. Um, She was very good about talking about my father. Matter of fact, I think they were going to maybe go to trial for the divorce. And she said, I will not let Betsy go on the stand because I would have had to, you know, be involved. And she was very good about not saying bad things about him. And in the end, it was just his behavior that made it clear how he felt. She did not want to hurt me. So if she knew that I had gone snooping, she would have been so upset that I kind of knew what the deal was. So there was a really big hole in my life all of a sudden. And Um, now it's just you and her, you and mom. mm -hmm. Yep. What was high school? So you dropped acid and... um, you know, that was the beginning of high school. What did the rest of high school look like? I did not participate. I stayed away from drugs and alcohol really till the very end of my senior year. I kind of have a history of having boyfriends that are drug dealers. It's a good way to go. (laughs) My first one was my senior year and he was a drug dealer and I was able to say no, no, no. And I really barely drank because that, that bad trip scared the bejesus out of me. It really did. But soon after that, I was away at school and wow, it's like the floodgates opened. Why date a drug dealer if you're not going to do the drugs? you know, attention. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure he was very cool. Yeah. And I was getting attention. Yeah. You know, matter of fact, we're in touch still today. It's interesting. (laughs) But 
I, uh, I went to college and I kind of just started to let it all loose and I tried everything there was. Yeah. And did you get addicted to things in college or what, what, how did college go? I feel that in college, I started to drink every day and, you know, often it was beer, which I didn't really like, but just to have that feeling of being buzzed at the end of the day felt very comfortable. And there are two things I remember clearly. Once I got very sick to my stomach and I drank through it, thinking that it was going to solve the pain of the, of the stomach pain. It was like severe stomach pain. Normal people do not do that. Like, yeah. I mean, I was drinking vodka through it. And the other thing I remember is it was just around the time that restaurants like Fridays were opening up. And there was one that we went to in a town nearby because the town I was in college had nothing. Like it was drinking or nothing pretty much in the middle of the winter. And they served a martini in a goblet that was the size of like a dessert bowl. And I remember thinking, oh, I could do this a lot. And look, I won't have to keep ordering drinks. And then got in the car with a boyfriend then and drove home. And he had probably drank just as much, which is a whole other thing about drinking and driving in my life, which is... You know, it's a big shame for me because years later I did drink and drive. But nonetheless, those are the two things that I really remember that my drinking ramped up. I could never do any drugs with also without some kind of drinking. I tried all sorts of things. And I, but you know, I got out just fine. People around me were getting out by the skin of their teeth. I mean, graduating. I, I you know, I still was under, way under the radar. Right. Looking around and and compared to other people. And that's a huge piece of so much of how we hide is looking around going, well, I'm not as bad as them and I'm not as bad as, you know, and and kind of comparing ourselves. Where are we? And for me, when when I was worse than those people, just switch the people around. So I still wasn't as bad as whoever it was. You just bring in the new lower companions. Your freshman year in college, there was an incident that I want to hear a bit about, um, a trauma. What, um, what was that and how, how has that affected and shaped your life? Well, it's very interesting. I was raped my freshman year in college in a fraternity and I did not realize it until 10 years ago. I was in a situation 10 years ago that reminded me of this, of this other situation in a fraternity And I was not drunk enough that I was in a blackout because I am a blackout drinker. I remember it clearly, but I pushed it down so, so far that it took, what, close to 30 years to come out, which is crazy, crazy to me. So the, so you had a flashback of what happened and, and it was in the floodgates opened, but you had not remembered it. I had a flashback about what happened. I remember walking away from it going, that wasn't right, but you can't tell anybody. Pushing it down and then 10 years ago, literally seeing myself in the situation going, holy cow, that was rape. And I'm sure that that added to my feeling that uh, that I was less than, that, you know, my opinion didn't matter. That's another piece of my thinking as an alcoholic, that, that I'm not respected and I don't have a voice. And yeah, so crazily enough, 
it came back. I've only let it come back a little. I'm sure there's more work to do on it, but yeah. Why do you think that um, that situation, why do you think that you, so let me back up. I've heard this story many times, which is I didn't realize what it was. I, or or like I realized, I've, I have friends who years into their sobriety are like, I realized that I, you know, I repressed a sexual trauma. And I think that's a hard thing for a lot of people to understand this traumatic event happened, you know, who haven't experienced it. Two things. Why do you think that at the time you didn't, it didn't register as rape? And how do you think that you were able to not just because I, cause there's some people who basically they don't register. They're like, well, this happened. And then there's full suppression of the memory. Can you talk a little bit about those two piece, those two parts? Well, I do believe that I felt that this person was more powerful than me and that I had to keep them happy. And what a storm would pursue if I said anything about it. And I do believe it is another example, and I know we'll talk maybe a little more about codependency, of me being codependent in a relationship where somebody does something that really is not, because I knew this person, is not appropriate, and me just shutting my mouth and letting it happen. And then it comes, it always later on in life would come out sideways with some other situation. So, and I do believe that it's the way I was raised. I, I, you know, was raised in a house where the man was strong. Do you have a relationship with your father? Both my parents are dead, passed away. Did you have a relationship with your father before he passed away? I did. I did. It was, I would say very stressful for me. A couple things Myself and my half-siblings, we would say, we can't talk to him after 8 o'clock at night because he's going to be mean. And why was that? Because he would have had his exact measured drinks. It was very interesting. We could only have a certain amount measured, but it would still change his personality. And the other thing was that my mother had noticed for years that right before I would see my father, I would get really cranky and mean and kind of nasty to everybody around me. And it was like, it was this anxiety about what was going to happen when I saw him. I remember her even saying to my now ex-husband, before Betsy sees her dad, just so you know, I must've been like kind of acting out, you know, she can, she can really seem like she's angry and pissed off. So here I am doing that to people that I love because I'm going to see this person who left me, who made me feel badly. I allowed myself to feel badly the whole nine yards. So I did have a relationship, but I would say it was very strained. Very strained. You, so you come out of college and you moved to New York City. Is this when you entered into the fashion world. Right away. Got an amazing job in the fashion department at Glamour Magazine. And my first job, my first shoot was with Christy Brinkley. I mean, talk about stepping in 
whatever, really, really good stuff. And I wasn't sure really how I got the job was I, I, I kept thinking I just must've been the right person at the right time. You know, I couldn't even feel sort of the pride, but I will say that very quickly boys and nightlife became more important than the job. And I was working with incredible people. I can go back through glamour magazines of the early eighties and go, I did that. I did that. I did, you know, and it's just, it seems like I could not take advantage of having such a fabulous job. And I was, I was drinking, I was out very late and I was boy crazy. I mean, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I, I think most people probably would have done that at least for a period of time, but I think that it's really, it's about, we take it to that next level, right? I think that, you know, you have this cool job. There's a lot of nightlife involved, right? I think there's there's a piece of it. You're young, you're right out of college. I actually think that many of us would be in that same position. I think there's this piece where when you're trying to fill a void that's so deep that you it, there's nothing that's ever good enough or will fill it, what wouldn't be normal party, nightlife, whatever turns into that. And we, we just, and it's like that with everything. We, we just pull it across that line, like something that would have been normal partying in high school or kind of young, but normal partying or normal experience. We just pull it right over, just pull it right over. And we do that with everything. And kind of what we were talking about in the beginning, which is you know, if we just direct, it depends where this stuff is pointed. If it's pointed in a positive direction, we're going to pull it over that that positive, you know, goal line. And if it's pointed at, at stuff that's destructive, same thing. It just depends on where it's pointed. It's in us. It's a piece of who we are. How did you pull it over that line with with the partying and and at, when you were at Glamour? Well, I a couple of ways. The first thing is I stayed at four jobs for two years. Like I couldn't stay anywhere longer than that. I would get impatient and I'd want to move on, which is a part of my personality. And I think it is part of, of the, of the addict in me that there's always something better somewhere else. I would go out with a bunch of people and they leave at 12 or one. And I was bringing the drug dealer home at seven in the morning. And funny or not so funny story. It was actually a job after Glamour. I went from Glamour to working on 7th Avenue to the another small magazine to Bloomingdale's to fashion PR. So I really had covered all sides of the business. But at this one job, the small magazine, I had been missing so much work. I thought, I need to come up with a story. I need to make like a real reason why my life is so crazy and, and I'm sick all the time. So I went out and bought an eye patch, put it on my face and came into work and said my boyfriend had beaten me up. And that's why things have been really tough for me. And these people believed it hook, line and sinker. How crazy is that? I'm not even sure I really had a regular boyfriend at the time. I don't, it, the whole thing is let's do whatever we can to cover up what we really want to do. Which I thought is, you were going with like glaucoma or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, uh, it's, no. <laughs> I was like, where's she going with the eye patch? I mean, 
It's crazy and it's not crazy because it's crazy for, again, it's crazy for people who don't, who maybe haven't felt that desperation to find a way to cover up this thing that we're doing that we don't really have control over. But it's, if it were, if you put it in, if you you put it in any other terms, like, you know, protecting your child or protecting something you care about or, or, or necessity or food or, you know, the same parts of your brain that are affected by addiction are, you know, other like sleep and eating and, you know, those vital parts of ourselves that we need in order to survive. Well, addiction affects those parts of our brain. So to me, when I think about it, Sure. Is that crazy? I mean, you know, yes. In the context of normal people, absolutely. But in the context of you have this, this drive, need, desire, compulsion that affects the same part of your brain that you, that protects all your vital signs, all your, your vital functions that you would do something that got people away from that. It makes total sense, right? It makes total sense when, I mean, even, you know, it sounds crazy, but then you look at it from the aspects of, you know, addiction, of, of neuro, you know, the way that your, your, your neurobiology is reacting to what you're doing. I mean, all of that makes sense to me. So you found a way, you know, an eye patch, which frankly is that's, it's pretty low cost. That's a pretty easy, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking like, okay, well, she's gonna, she's gonna get a bill for chemo or like, I'm going way, I'm like, oh, an eye patch, duh. Like, that's my problem is my problem is like, you are like, I know I can take care of this problem with an eye patch and a story. Unfortunately, I have the tendency to come up with like, I'll injure myself, you know, like I have to, I, I, I just take everything, just even, even the things that are too far to begin with, I just continue to take them too far. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we do in order to protect what we have going on. When you did that, did you have feelings of shame and remorse? And did you think to yourself, oh my gosh, I think think there's something wrong. You know, interestingly, I really did not. I I mean, I was so committed to this life that I was leading, this double life, like the good girl going to work during the day and then out, you know, doing insanity at night, that at the time it seemed all very reasonable. But when I got sober years later and I look back at my story, I was like, what the are you, I mean, who would go out of their way and think of something that sounded traumatic, but, but it, you know, and it was caused by somebody else. Right. Totally. So it wasn't my fault. Totally. Totally. It was somebody else had done it. And, um, yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> I call this, um, addict logic. And I love in my story, I, I can go through all my you know, attic logic. And I, I had some amazing attic logic. I mean, attic logic really brings me deep joy. Just going through the list of things. It's hysterical. I mean, it's, you know, once you're, you're kind of through it right through the, the, but you look back, you're like, no, I actually really believed in whatever, you know, this particular attic logic was. I, I hook line, like not only did they believe it, but I believed it. Or not only did they not believe it, but I definitely did believe it. Really, really bought into my own bullshit. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I did anything and it also got me attention. 
because that's part of this pattern that I have. You know, I call it like the poverty of the soul. It's like there's something so missing in me that, oh, are you okay? Is everything all right? And yeah, and and somehow it it just seemed like it was an okay thing to do. And it, yeah, so I was out all all night long, many many nights, and it did not feel good at all. Lying, it was a double life. Did you, was your husband a drug dealer? No, he's the first one. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, he's not a drug dealer. I'm going to marry him. Thank God. He wasn't a drug dealer. He was doing really, really well on Wall Street when I met him. But he drank like I did. He did. And we would have a couple cocktails and a bottle of wine every single night, pretty much. And at this point, I now had a strong feeling that I was not able to stop. Like, whatever was happening at the end of the day... I was always like, oh, do we have any wine left, you know, to him? And if not, I'd pick it up. Or is there any vodka left? Like it became my goal. I was working during the day just to work, to do something. But my goal was to have that amount that I needed every single night. And he was just fine with it. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. And, you know, he's doing well on Wall Street. So you maybe were able to recreate some of that fancy that you grew up with. Yeah, So fancy. We had, we went to five-star dinners, you know, a couple times a month. We were out with friends. I can't even tell you the restaurants that I've been to that I probably left almost in a blackout because I was a blackout drinker. That first time at age 14, I blacked out and not every time since, but if I had a certain amount, I, I would not remember. And when did you start having children? So I really wanted to leave the city. It was the late 80s, early 90s. There were a lot of homeless people. I was working at Bloomingdale's and walking to work through Central Park. And I just started to go, I can't, I'm hungover in the morning and I cannot look and smell and see what I see. Let's move to New Jersey. And I put a full court press on that one. Let's move to New Jersey and let's have kids. And it happened. It happened within um, within a year. We moved to New Jersey. We were still drinking every night. And I got pregnant and I had a miscarriage. And that really freaked me out. I had been my mother's only live birth. She had seven miscarriages. So my brain went, oh, my God, same thing's going to happen to me. And you know what? I stopped immediately. And actually pretty quickly got pregnant. And then I started having kids. And I, man, I just spit them out. Two I was going to say 20, 20, 20, 20, 28. Yes. Woo. 
28, 26, and 24. And then there was a four-year gap between the 24 and the 20-year-old. And that became my life. But I still was drinking every night. Not as much because I have to tell you, and I know you don't know this because you've been sober longer than you've had your kids, waking up with a hangover with young children, you want to shoot yourself, you want to shoot them, you want to, I mean, it is horrendous. I can't even imagine. I mean, it's bad enough being sober. Yeah. So I did kind of lay off of it because I think my next compulsion was having these kids and taking care of them. But I did make a couple of forays into like, well, I'll tell you, I was raised a wasp, a Protestant. And when my kids were old enough to go to Hebrew school, we started taking them to a temple. And I decided several years into that, that I didn't fit into the temple unless I was Jewish. So I start, I converted to Judaism. I truly believe to fit in. Now, there's some things I won't go into the religious aspect of it, but I was able to to look at at Judaism as a great religion. But I really think that I felt my husband's family was Jewish. Many of our friends were Jewish, that if I did this, I would fit in better. Okay, so maybe I wasn't drinking as much. Now I was becoming a Jew. And years earlier, I'd done Est. And I'd done all these different spiritual programs. What's going to make me fit in? How am I going to feel better? Right. It's that never ending, <laughs> that never ending void. And whatever will fit at that point in time is what we will, we will do. So you're drinking every night. You're drinking less because of the kids. Do the kids, you know, they maybe have retrospect, but do the kids notice any of this or do the kid like what's the relationship with you and, and and what is what are you like as a mom at that point well i didn't fall apart until i had my fourth child i was keeping it together you know drinking but keeping it together i would say right after she was born i said to my husband I had her with no drugs. Yeah, it was lovely. And I said to my husband, I need a bottle of champagne. And he like responded back, okay, I'll pick one up. And I said, no, I need a bottle of champagne for me. Can you please get me my own bottle of champagne? Because at the end of the pregnancy, for the first time, I had started to urge and, and have thoughts of drinking. And I had never felt that before with the first three kids. So he goes out and gets me a bottle of champagne and we have, I have my own bottle. I don't even remember what he drank, but I was like, ah, I don't care what you drink. I hate this. And it started me on this three and a half year run that ended up with me getting sober. So that was April, 2000. And I got sober in October, 2003. And I, my drinking would get earlier and earlier. I went to a psychiatrist because I was drinking so much during the day, I would wake up in the middle of the night with the shakes. And of course, didn't tell the psychiatrist I'm drinking so much. And she gives me Xanax. So here in the evenings, I'm drinking and taking Xanax. And it was a mess. My, I like to, when I qualify, I like to start with 
what my days at the end of my drinking were like, because it really is so important for me. And I'll just do it really quickly. I would wake up at six thirty or seven in the morning as the kids were getting up and look under the bed to see if there was a bottle there. If there wasn't, I go searching in one of my closets. I'd take a slug of whatever it was, red wine, vodka. If it was Mike's hard lemonade, I would sometimes buy that and say, Oh, that'll be my breakfast. Cause at least there's juice in it. Like it's food-like and I would take a slug, I would throw up immediately and I would take another slug and I would get my kids ready for school. I did have a live-in helper quite ironically and I think because she was there, I could go down the tubes much quicker and I would stick the kids in the car and drive them to school and I was already on my way into a brownout and then a blackout and my day was spent getting rid of the bottles, shopping and buying new liquor in, you know, how we have this crazy thing where we think we can't go to the same liquor store time after time. Like, like they're like, just give us the money, you know, yeah, the, the, the totally. people on the stores, they couldn't care less. Yeah. But, you know, I have some kind of, of, of something that is holding me together that God forbid you see me buy, you know, two days in a row, my vodka. So by the last year of my drinking, I would drop them at school and several days a week go off to the mall, probably after I've gotten rid of the bottles in a dumpster behind some store and would go into, uh, we lived near quite a famous, very upscale mall and would go into a restaurant and order a shot when they opened at 12 down a shot and go shopping. And I would buy, can I have two pairs of those, two pairs of these? I was in Neiman Marcus. I was in Saks. I was in Bloomingdale's. I mean, total financial insanity. So was that like the the feeling of winning at a slot machine? Like like if you got two pairs? Yeah. So it's it's very similar. It was... I can explain it as similar to when you know you're going to be able to drink when you're an alcoholic or do your drugs. Like you're on the way to the liquor store and you're kind of like you get ramped up and you're excited about it. I was excited going shopping. I felt like I had some superiority if I could say, hey, hey, give me two pairs of Manolo Blahniks. I mean, this is going back into my psyche. I don't remember really feeling these things in the moment, but I've had to analyze it pretty carefully. So I was, it seemed like I was rich. I was cool. I was all the things that I thought I wanted to be. And I was accepted because a lot of times, um, you know, I was still watching what was going on in fashion or we were going out to fancy dinners or to even, temple and I would see the newest pocketbook and I'd be like, I have to have that. And it became an obsession until I had it. And, but I drank before I did it too. So hand in hand, I was, I was just making myself what I thought look glorious and feel glorious every day until the shift just completely fell apart. Of course. What, what did that, so two parts, what did that look like and how was your husband, what was his response to the spending, the drinking, what was he seeing or not seeing? So he caught on about a year and a half into my drinking. And for some period of time, he'd come home from work at night and we'd have a huge argument where he'd say, you're drinking, you're drunk, you have to stop this. And I'd say, no, you know, I'm not. Why would you think that? 
I mean, at this point, I'm hiding the bottles. Like if there was a bottle of wine in the refrigerator, I wasn't drinking from that. I was drinking from the bottles, you know, under my bed or in my closets or, and so we'd have a big fight and he would see the bills. He, we would argue about that too. But what then happened is I realized, oh, I can stop that from happening. I'm just going to open up other credit cards. So my other goal on a daily basis was to get the mail before he could get the mail, particularly on the weekends, so that I could pull out the credit card bills that I that I had opened that he didn't know I had. And honestly, I don't even remember how I was. No, I had gone to my mom. My mom was giving me some money and she had never asked me any questions about it. So I'm hiding the liquor. I'm hiding the shopping because when I get home, I would just shove the bags into, we had a closet, a house that had quite a few closets and they're all filled with my stuff in the way back. Particularly I would you know, shove the stuff in the back of the closet and then I was hiding the credit card bills. It was pretty ugly. What did it look like when that all came to a head? So that came Actually, I'll take a step back. My husband heard about Al-Anon and he started to go to Al-Anon religiously three times a week. Oh, no. Yeah. And he <laughs> got really silent. Uh-huh. And that scared me more yeah. than the yelling and the fighting. Because all of a sudden he wasn't saying a word. And I kept thinking, oh, my God, he's going to have an intervention and he's going to bring my family and his family and his mother is going to be there. And my mother-in-law is going to be telling me I'm a drunk and I can't have that happen to me. So I did have this fear in the back of my brain in my last days of drinking. He stopped yelling at me about the money and the drinking. I, um, I had a small car accident outside of this mall that I would go to frequently And I had to call the police to come and they came before they came. I had been drinking during the day. I had one of my bottles with vodka in it, like a sports bottle. And I realized, oh my God, the police are coming. I better get my act together. I had two of my kids with me and I stuck this bottle behind a tree. My car had to be towed. The police asked me many questions. I can only think that my adrenaline was was just coursing through my body, and that's why they had no idea that I was drunk and I was chewing a big wad of gum. And my husband had to come and get me, and as we were leaving that parking lot and that mall, my son said to me, Oh, Mommy, your sports bottle is over there behind the tree. Don't you want it? Should we stop and get it? And a Paul came over me and I realized, holy crap, that is filled with vodka. And I am leaving that there. And I needed it so much that I had to hide it from the police. It probably caused the accident. And I kind of call it my first God moment where I realized that I was very sick. I was very sick. Yeah. And what, so your husband starts going to Al-Anon. Do you know he's going to the meetings? Yes, I do. Okay, so now you... I do. But I was sort of like, oh, good, get out of the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can, you know, drink a little fiercer for the next hour and a half because I was constantly hiding. Did you get sober before or after you guys split up? I got sober uh, quite a bit before. So I... The other kind of interesting thing about my story, at least to me, is that I had that accident on one Monday 
a week later on a Monday, I fell on my bathroom floor in the middle of the night. They thought I had a brain bleed. I was brought to the hospital. My husband, who never woke up for anything, like thought there was an earthquake, found me on the floor. I do have low blood pressure, but God knows what I drank that day. And I was whisked off in an ambulance and they had to do a CAT scan, I guess it was, to see what was going on in my head, but I couldn't stop throwing up because I had such a bad concussion. And as soon as they'd say, okay, don't move, I'd throw up again and they'd have to start it over. And this went on for, it felt like a couple of hours. And sometime during that process, I said, God help me. This is not how I want to die. So this was a week later on a Monday. And my sober date is the next Monday, the third week in October, October 20th. Um, Because what had happened between the time of the accident and getting sober, I knew somebody who I thought was in AA. And I went to her and I said, I'm really, really sick. And she said, let's go to meetings. But, you know, the meetings were at night and I was showing up wasted. And she said to me, I think you might have to go away. And then that was when I was like, oh, good. I get to go on a vacation. Let me pick a good rehab. I mean, I literally took it on as a job to find a rehab. And I did. I was lucky enough to find one. And I was lucky enough, you know, to to follow the program. What I say about sobriety is that I just have had to practice it every day, just like it is like an instrument. You want to learn guitar, you practice every day, you practice your sobriety every day. But to go back to your question, we broke up um, seven years later. We got divorced seven years later. So we were together for quite a a while. Did you stop your uh, compulsive shopping when you got sober? No. I still shopped for about two, two and a half years. I realized... so, So the shopping... I didn't have to be drunk to do the shopping. And so it became clear that I could separate the two. Um, The shopping was still filling me up and making me feel like I look good or I own the things that I needed to own to be an okay person. And I did realize, though, that the lying about the credit cards was pretty bad. And one of the major theses of AA, because that's how I got sober was honesty. And I was not being honest. And it was interesting that my husband didn't question. I think he was so relieved that I wasn't drinking that he didn't really question the shopping. But you know, in the meantime, he never had really pulled out all the stops to get me to stop doing anything. And that was because he had his own issues at the same time. And I'm sure it felt like, oh my God, if she really stops, then I'm going to have to stop too. So we broke up six years later and got divorced seven years later. And I was able to stop the shopping, particularly after someone had said to me, our our house at the time was on the market and a friend from AA was one of the brokers that went through the house. And I saw him at a meeting a couple days later and he said, did you realize you have 30 different colored sweaters lined up in your closet? And I just hit me. Oh my God, that is an insane amount. Who would ever wear 30 sweaters, different colors? I felt incredible shame. And it was like another God moment. It was like God was speaking to me. What are you doing, Betsy? 
you know, and I think particularly because it was somebody that I, I knew understood me because they were in AA that I could really hear what they were saying. And that was sort of, that was the beginning of the end of my shopping too. Do you think that people, you know, I, I could see people thinking, oh, well, I can't have a shopping addiction because I don't have that kind of money. And I wonder how having money plays into a shopping addiction and if, you know, that's something that people, I mean, I, 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 sort, I know the answer, but can, if you could talk a little bit about shopping addiction without money. Sure. You know, money does not necessarily play into shopping addiction because credit card companies, for one thing, will give you a credit card for anything. A matter of fact, when I closed my last credit card down, I had to beg them to take me out of the system because, as I had learned, they would come back to me in a year and offer me a new credit card. So first of all, if you can start getting credit, you can get lots of credit in general. But the other thing is you don't have to necessarily be buying fancy clothes like I was to have a compulsive buying disorder. It could be at the supermarket. It could be at the, at the dollar store. It is the feeling that when you buy something that you feel better and it is something you compulsively need. So it could be a hundred red balls if you're obsessed with red balls from the, the dollar store. But there really comes a point where you can't even use all the things you're buying. And then as soon as you're done with the transaction and you have at home, you often don't care what it is or where it is. My things were still stuffed into bags, tags on them. It was that action of purchasing that gave me such a high. Then I would even have so many clothes I didn't know, you know, what was what. And we'd be going out at night and I'd be like, oh, my God, where is this? I know I have it somewhere. And it would take me hours to find something. So it was that it was that action of actually purchasing that made me feel whole. What did your children, so you've had some time to talk to your children about, you know, what they've experienced, what they saw, when they tell you about their experience with you. And this kind of plays into also the, you know, I know you listened to Melinda's episode and had some feelings around ACA stuff. But when you talk to your children, what was their experience or what were they saying at the time? Or, you know, have they given you interesting insight? They have. The oldest child remembers the most. He remembers mommy and daddy arguing many nights, and he said he would cry himself to sleep, which just, you know, strikes me as I can't even believe I was doing that, um, along with uh, drinking and driving. They were not aware that I was drinking and driving. So he remembers the most. The middle two... The older girl says she remembers I would read to her and fall asleep in bed. And then, like, she couldn't move me. She couldn't get me up, which was me passing out. The third child does not remember. And Carly, my youngest, really doesn't remember anything because, you know, she was three and a half when I got sober. And I'd had somebody helping me in the house. But that oldest child does remember one evening that we were driving home from a restaurant. And I said to him, I'm getting sleepy. And it really scared him. And I think that evening I may have taken part of his Xanax and was drinking. 
and with driving. And, you know, this is my biggest shame. This is the, this is really the biggest thing for me to get over. I think I've done a lot of work on it, but I, when I hear about people drinking and driving, I'm just a shambles. I really am. So in terms of the shopping, I've never actually asked them if they were real, if they realized that their closets was, were filled with my things too. So I am going to have, I'm going to have to go there. That is really actually a, a, a great question. When I was newly sober and I was going to meetings, I would tell them that I had assorted other things to do because I wasn't ready to tell them that I had gotten sober. So they've said a little, they have been to celebration meetings and I've seen them all cry when I've talked about the end of my drinking and what life is like now. So, yeah. Do they ever um, ask you to talk to your fr- their friends or people that they know? Or You know, not yet, but I do think that they are cautious talking about how much alcohol is drank, especially when they were in college. Now, Carly, the youngest, is still in college. They have not asked me to do that. And, you know, I have to say that the coming when it comes around to the time of my anniversary, they always say how proud they are of me. And they all enjoy drinking, too. So it's not like um, they don't do it around me. But I would say that they they are cautious and they often, when they were a little younger, wouldn't come home if they'd been drinking. They'd stay at a friend's house, which always made me feel better. Do not ever drive. But um, I think that I have a different relationship with them than lots of parents in the town they grew up in because those parents were, have been serving their kids and their friends alcohol, which just is there's a law in New Jersey that you leave somebody's house drunk. You are the person responsible. So... But we have a lot of open conversations. They know most of the drugs I've done. And, of course, they can't believe I ever did that. You know, you can't, <laughs> yeah, can't, you can't your, fathom yeah. that your mother did those things, uh, which is good. Because if they could fathom, I would right. probably not be in great shape. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. true. That's it true. Is true. Something I often think about with my my little ones, which is like they can, they are not going, that is going to be, well, hopefully where that will be, you know, uh, pretty unthinkable for them, but they are also going to grow up knowing that they're, you know, that that was a big part of their parents' lives. Like that's going to be, you know, a big part of this. And, and it's an interesting thing. You, you listened to Melinda's episode talking about ACA. What were some of your revelations with regard to that? Well, I have just started actually before the pandemic going to ACA and I feel Gosh, those 14, the laundry list of 14 attributes, I think I have 12 of them. And that really kind of hit me over the head. ACA is going to be my new, my new place to go. Not that I won't go to AA meetings, but I really have found a place that explains all my behaviors and all my thinking from the earliest age, you know, maybe two or three stories that have been told about behaviors that I had. And, you know, I know we're not supposed to say who else is an alcoholic but ourselves. I would bet that, though, I will say my father's been gone a long time. He was a very controlled drinker, and he had some of the thinking and behaviors and 
attitudes, I would say, of an alcoholic. And that just makes me know that, that ACA is the place for me. My mother much less so, but I also believe that they may have been the product of some kind of addiction or mental health. I know that there have been people in distant family who've killed themselves, um, bipolar. So, you know, I totally believe that this runs through families and I happen to be the one who got it in our little world. So, but ACA is in my mind kind of groundbreaking and I don't think I could have done it early on in sobriety. I just had to stay sober. And now at this point, yeah. For people who don't know, ACA is adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. Yes. And I've been talking it up with lots of people, even people whose parents weren't alcoholic. Um, wow, what an amazing program. And that's the dysfunctional, I think they added that piece, which was, you know, the dysfunctional families piece, because they were finding there were lots of people whose parents weren't straight alcoholics, who there was a lot of relation to what was going on. And, and this looks at things like intergenerational trauma, where, you know, someone's someone's experience that has not been processed and, and, and dealt with that is passed on from generation to generation. And there's, there's a, a theory that it comes out in the alcoholic. So it, the, the trauma comes down, it's not dealt with, it's not dealt with, and then it hits the alcoholic and the alcoholic basically processes it through addiction and brings the whole family to its attention and it either they either it either dies with them or process they process it or they get sober or any of those number of things happen but that that person is forcing through their their addiction that person is forcing the attention on this you know thing that's been passed down and i you know it sounds very woo woo but i've seen it I've seen it, you know, and it really does, you know, stuff that is not dealt with is carried down in some way, shape or form, often unknowingly to the, you know, other generations. And so much of what I love about being sober is this opportunity to try to stop that cycle. You know, I'm sure I'm sure I'm just creating a new one. I'm just giving them new stuff to to tear it down generation to generation. I'm like, but it won't be the old stuff. So that's what matters. But yeah, I, I think that that's, it gives us that opportunity or at least to have those conversations and the skills to have those conversations. What are you doing now? I just want to go back and say, I think once you have children, you will do anything as long as you're not in active addiction to not pass bad things on. You know, I grew up, children should be seen and not heard. A matter of fact, in my fourth step, I had to put that as one of the institutions in the, you know, AA fourth step, um, because that was always said to me, children should be seen and not heard. Can I just say that my children did not get that memo at all whatsoever? (laughs) (laughs) I hear about that. I'm like, how does that even, like, I'm just curious how that even works, let alone like whether, I mean, there, anyway, yeah. It's so old school. You know, I really believe it's a product of the 20s, 30s and 40s, which is, you know, my parents when they were brought up. So yes. And, and so I did let my kids um, be heard and seen. And I'm hoping that, you know, that all worked out well. 
So here I am in Denver with this new master's degree, and I am working towards being a licensed clinical social worker. And I have gone back a bit into a business that I had started five years ago called Mindful Style, where I went into people's closets, mostly women, um, to help them remove all the excess clothes that many people have, you know, like often a woman will have 10, 12 pairs of black pants. We just start right there. You don't need that much and remove the things and then learn how to put the clothes back together. And from that platform, I currently have something called a curation closet curation challenge going on Facebook where you pay a thumb and you follow me daily for 10 days. What I have recorded how to go through your closet and you you then post your pictures of what you've done on a daily basis we get together we talk about it cuz it can be really hard to remove things if you're attached to stuff selling giving away anything can be really hard um and and I help you do that and from then from that group I'm really helping to find some people that might need my services with compulsive shopping, sort of to call the people that have to go a step further. So it is very exciting. And and then my long range goal is to, is to really help compulsive behaviors probably remotely since it seems like this will be the way of the world for a while and, or remain the way of the world. And, um, you know, starting with shopping, but there are a number of other process addictions that are crazy, crazy making too, you know, from gaming, online gaming, gambling, sex, food. Oh, I actually have something that I do want to add because this is sort of my joking way to explain what cross addiction is. And that is the, once you're up, so a person with a person with a compulsive behavior or an addiction, you tend to find that you have other compulsive behaviors or addictions. And what I like to say to my clients is it's like a shell game. And those who aren't from or haven't been in New York City to see a shell game, I'll explain it a little differently. And that is that let's say you have alcoholism and drug addiction and you put them in two garbage cans, and let's say you have your compulsive shopping in the third garbage can, but on any given day, you only have two tops to the garbage cans, and you're always trying to cover up and work with one of those addictions. And it takes years, and it has really taken me years to not have any of them flaring up. And at this point, I don't believe I have any flare-ups, but it is once our minds have that way of being, I think it is very hard to give up things completely. Absolutely. Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you, what are your favorite venues for selling people selling their clothing? Well, it depends on what kind of clothing, Certainly designer clothes, gosh, there's a lot of places, the real, real, vestiaire, first dibs, and then other brands like J. Crew and Madewell and Gap. You can go to a place called Poshmark, all do it on your phone. You literally open up the app and you take a picture and it's out in the internet and it's amazing how quickly people buy. 
And there, there are several of those. My daughter is selling some clothes right now on Bepop. I think it's called B-E-P-O-P. Um, and, and you literally print your shipping label and they're gone. And of course, any way not to buy new things is right up my alley because there's so much out there. So many clothes have been manufactured in the last 25 years that it's really a shame. And then, of course, to give away clothes, I love the places like back in New Jersey, um, Vietnam vets would come and pick them up and muscular, I said muscular dystrophy will come and pick them up and you just leave them at your front door with a little sign on it and a bag and they're whisked away. What happens to recycled clothes is a completely other topic, which would take another session to do, which I won't say any more about, but it really is important for us to look at how much we consume and where things are going in this day and age. And I think that possibly with COVID, online shopping compulsivity is off the charts. So I think this is the time to talk about it. Yeah. Are there compulsive for people who are looking for support groups, um, compulsive shopping support groups? Interestingly, in the 12-step world, Debtors Anonymous is the closest thing, and it is effective. I have only been to one meetings of Debtors Anonymous. There are, on Facebook, I know you can find some groups. There are the real extreme groups, like the minimalist groups, which is not what I do with my clients. It doesn't mean you can only own, you know, three T-shirts. You can you can own more than that, especially if you've already paid for it and, and you know, it looks good on you. But I do believe that this is an area that I'm just dying to get into and start multiple programs because with COVID, you know, I just keep hearing people are drinking like fish from home and they're shopping like, yeah. Yep. Yep. They absolutely are. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's interesting. It's, you know, there's, there's also the idea of scale, right? Like something can be an outrageous purchase for someone who, so, you know, something can be outrageous depending on how much money you have and depending on what your resources are. And they could be out re- outrageous for one and not for the other. And so, you know, it's kind of like in Overeaters Anonymous or some of the food addiction groups, it's there, it's not always black and white. It's not always black and white. I mean, I, oh God, I'll never forget. I went to uh, Las Vegas with uh, a man I know who comes from a billionaire family and he put a hand down. We went to a poker and I, I don't like gambling. Um, so it's just not my thing. I want to know what I'm buying. <laughs> I want to get something for every birch, every dollar. Yeah. I'm like, why would I? No, uh, that's not fun. And he put a hundred grand down and lost it in one hand. And I couldn't like, it was too. And it was interesting because for him, that's just, if you look at how much money he has, it's just, you know, it's just not a lot. It's just not a lot for him, but it was a lot for me. And, um, and it was too difficult. And so I, I always think of that example because our response, our internal responses, our responses are just so different. And, if I had done that exact same thing, right, that would have been a completely reckless thing. And for him, it just wasn't reckless. It was indulgent, but I maybe not reckless. And so I think there's a lot of gray and and people 
it looks different on different people and you have to take that into account. And so I think there's a lot of room for evaluation around this stuff. And um, I also think, you know, shopping is very different now that you can go online and get exactly what you need and what you're looking for. And I don't know if that makes it better or worse. Sometimes, I mean, I think sometimes better in that you don't have, you're not walking by something, um, sometimes worse in that all the algorithms, you know, if the social dilemma has come out and it's telling us all about how the, you know, it's all look watching what we're doing. So I think there's just a lot of space that would help people that you have, you know, a place to help people figure this stuff out. And, and even in ways that are new, um, you know, that we've never seen before. And kind of what I've been talking about a lot lately is like, nobody has, nobody has a COVID playbook, you know, nobody has a, right? Like nobody has a COVID, nobody has a COVID parenting playbook. Nobody has a COVID school playbook, a sobriety playbook, a, you know, we don't have this playbook. And so as scary as it is, it also, for me, it provides some grace with, look, we're all learning how to do this together. There's no tried and true pandemic, you know, roadmap here. And our the way that our compulsions are coming out is they're still there. They're still the same ones, but they're going to start to show up differently. And so those of us who've been doing this a long time, it's almost a place for us to show our expertise and show up and help people because we are improvising with new information, right? We, we know how to get people through a lot of the things that have been going on for decades and a lot of the, like, this is what you do when you go to work or this is, you know, what you do. And we know how to stay sober in those circumstances. Yeah. We know how to do that. We know how it's, 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 and it's pretty even, you know, we have, we have a lot of that. This is our time to show that our skills work even when no one's ever done it before. And I think that that is where mindful style, your your business and what you're doing is going to be a huge, huge service to a lot of people. Well, a couple things that just struck me while you were talking, and that is that before COVID, you know, shopping was a sport in this country. People go to malls on Saturday and Sunday and walk around. It like had become a sport. Now that has pretty much been pulled out from under us, certainly for now, but Hey, let's go to the mall and see what's there. And you know, that, that is a real in the last 25 year, 35 year kind of thing. And, and I believe it probably comes from, from world war two and, and previous to that. Um, I think we're a country that feels important when we have a lot, it's just our mentality. The other thing I wanted to say is, yeah, so in terms of mindful style, I am using some pieces of AA and I'm using some pieces of CBT, which is cognitive behavioral um, therapy to help people. And it is really hard with shopping and eating because you still have to do those two things which kind of alludes to what you were saying, this gray area. You know, when you stop drinking and drugging, you stay away from the bar, the liquor store, the drug dealer. When you are trying to control your shopping and or your eating, you still have to go to a store to buy some, some things and you still have to eat something. So as someone who struggles with eating uh, and, and has been to a lot of um, meetings about this, someone said something to me because I was saying the exact same thing. And they said, and they said something that it just 
burned in my brain, which is this. I was saying, well, you know, it's really hard because when I quit drugs and alcohol, I just stopped, blah, 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 enough to interact with them three times a day. And, you know, I don't have to drink. And and she said, yes, you do. You have to drink water. You have to drink. And I was like, yeah, you're right. She's like, you don't have to drink alcohol. And I said, well, yeah, but you know, I have to eat three times a day. And she goes, well, do you have to eat alcoholic foods? She's like, are you struggling? Are you eating heads of lettuce? Are you eating? Are you struggling because you're eating, right? You're eating the whole farmer's market. Is that what's happening? Well, no. Right. And she said, you don't, she's like, it's not true that you, you, you do have to continue to drink. You just don't have to drink alcohol. You do have to continue to, to, uh, to eat, but you can stop eating alcoholic foods. And I think this thing, like you and this may be a little bit different, but I, you know, I know that I'm not overbuying, although this is actually in the pandemic. I was going to say overbuying toilet paper. You know, you're not overbuying toilet paper or whatever, you know, and, and for some people that may or may not be the case. But I think that I think there's gray area, but there's specific, more salient things that we do. And when I think about that, because that's for me, that's a big thing that I tell myself, well, it's different. It's harder because I have to eat three times a day. I have to, I, you know, and, and that whole, no, you still have to drink. You just don't have to drink alcohol. You still have to eat. You don't have to eat the alcoholic foods that cause you to eat 10 of them. You're not eating 10 heads of lettuce. That's not what's happening. So I, I, I wonder, you know, if that there's, some amount of, yes, it's gray, but I also think that there are certain things that are just more triggering for people than others that fill that void more than others. And, you know, clothes, how we look, certain things, things that other people are going to see in some way, shape or form, those are likely to be things that are more, that we're going to buy more of, or that talk, you know, speak to us and, and, and that it's, it's not as complicated as we like to make it, I think. Well, I think that is a great point. And it really is about making choices and coming from like the scarcity thinking. Like scarcity thinking is why we bought all that toilet paper. If I am enough and I am filled, then, you know, all those carbs aren't going to make me feel a different way. And all those fancy shoes are, aren't going to make me feel a different way. And, and you, and that makes a lot of sense to me. I did find that I, we had a fancy supermarket near our house called Kings and I would go there and I would overshop there too. Yes. And we wouldn't necessarily eat it, but it would be shoved back in the pantry. And I'd be like, Oh, you know, why the heck did I buy that? You know, a month later. Right. There is something powerful about shopping and spending money. And I, I, you know. Excess. Yep. Yep. It is excess. More, more, more. Yep. 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 Well, it has been amazing having you on here and people can go to mindfulstyle.com. What's the, where's the best place? www.mindfulstyle.com. And do you, are you on social media? I'm all over social media, particularly Instagram and Facebook, but I'm Twitter and I'm posting a lot these days again. And I give tips and I give things to think about, you know, next time you go shopping. So you can kind of start to get into that mindset of, you know, what is it that I'm really trying to do here every time I buy something that I might possibly not need? Yeah. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Ashley. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings, schedule, and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.